0: Hey, hi! Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and welcome to the show. My guest this week is David Bismoskus a writer and filmmaker whose new film, Natasha, an adaptation of his 2004 book, opens the Toronto Jewish Film Festival this Thursday, May 5th, and begins its commercial run in Toronto and Vancouver on Friday, May 6th. David picked Holy Motors, Leo Karak's delirious 2012 carousel, look, can you think of a better word? Which follows a man known only as Monsieur Oscar, as he's driven around Paris in a limousine, assuming a series of roles in a series of situations, only some of which are recognizable as reality. It's a stunning showcase for the adaptability of Karat's longtime star, Denis Lavant, and for the versatility of Karat himself, who creates a series of self contained segments in every genre imaginable over the course of two hours. It's even a musical, sort of. Uh, this is someone else's movie.
1: I saw the film, maybe it's a couple years now, and I was just struck by it um, really as, as an example of pure creative um, energy. Um, it's a film that defies categorization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and what holds it together um, is really this sort of amorphous feeling. Um, and it's remarkable you can watch it and rewatch it. Um, and I can't say that I have any better insight into the organizing principle of the
0: film in any kind of linear way. Yeah. But emotionally, it just coheres all the time. Yeah. I was going to say. I described it as an anthology film, which is unfair, because in theory, it's a single linear narrative of one person assuming different identities, but every time I watch it, the sequence seems to change on me. I know it doesn't. I know the film is fixed, and I've had this experience with a couple of other movies, but this is one where I just, oh, this is now. Like, you're constantly shaken by your perspective, by your perception of where things are and how they're happening, and... Yeah, I think it is just cinema. Like, it's pure cinema. As as far as that goes, there's maybe a handful of those movies. We think that it's such a thing, but it's how artifice can disguise structure or or cliché or genre and and do a good job of it. But this really has no precedent. It just is this thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think of it in terms of, in practical terms, as, you know, somebody who makes art and, you know, works within the industries of art and try to imagine how a film like this gets made. How you go about proposing a film like this. I think it's, you know, I just see it as an act of
0: courage, like straight up and down. Yeah, I would say. And and Kara hadn't made a movie, a feature. He'd been working in shorts. He hadn't made a feature in something like 11 or 12 years when he finally did this. I had seen his segment of Tokyo at Cannes in 2008, which was just one of those bizarre moments. in my second day, my first time at Cannes, and I don't think I had a more singular experience that entire festival than that half hour of watching Denis Levant as whatever that is, as is. I've never seen it. This is Karis doing Tokyo. It is, yeah. It's a, it was a, a trilogy, or antho- it was an anthology of, yeah. of three directors making 25 to 30 minute shorts. Michelle Gundry put in one and the other one was, I think, Bong Joon-ho. And then in the middle introduced with the music from the original Godzilla uh, is this thing where the character Mered, who is the green-suited troll that, that Levant plays, that Oscar plays at one point in Holy Motors, yeah. uh, rampages through Tokyo, and it is as if he is a giant rampaging kaiju, but he's just a, a weird man in a green suit with a milky eye, running around cursing and throwing bombs, and, and the military rallies to try to destroy him, and he just he Disappears as, as mysteriously as he arrived. I mean, it really is insane uh, and delirious and giddy. And everybody, as soon as it was over, everybody just sort of sat there and giggled as though we had no idea what had just happened. And in the Michelle Gondry movie, a woman turned into a chair for a little while and then turned back into a woman and then turned back into a chair. And that was okay, but this was incredible. And then the moment in Holy Motors when Oscar becomes married again is just somehow delightful and weird and anarchic but within a world where it all makes sense where this is possible and i think it's before the accordion number i think but again it's amorphous i can never quite remember it it. is yeah it is i mean i think what's remarkable
1: about the film still is i think about in terms of whatever world and framework that um has to exist in to like make it in the first place like you pitch this idea i don't know who you pitch it to right yeah. So the film gets made, but even at this point to sit as we're sitting right now and to try to describe it, this is after the film has actually been made. Imagine pitching it before it exists Yeah, and trying to explain what it is you want to do. But now the thing exists and we've both watched it. Try pitching it now.
0: Yeah, It's, I,
1: still, it's still like defies, you know, categorization defies the ability to
0: actually explain what it is other than you have to see it and feel your way through it. Yeah, I was trying to figure out if you could pitch it as a package. You know, oh, we have Kylie Minogue and visual effects and a monster. It's all technically true. We have Eva Mendez, who is up for anything in this in this particular circumstance. We have uh, romance and sex and violence and, and a guy gets shot and there's a hitman. You could... I mean, it's every movie at once. Um, and... It is so weirdly good-natured about it like there's there is intensity and there is pain but you don't feel that way it's it's just so oddly exhilarating to spend time in it it's also moving i mean some of the most moving parts of it um
1: on multiple levels i mean i don't know if you remember there are a couple scenes that come back they might be back to back or very close to it the father who picks the daughter up from the party yeah and you know, it's this, this, this like, shitty little car driving around Paris and he has this exchange with his daughter who uh, you know, has gone to her first party and she lies to him about what it was like and it's, and it's so raw. And then very shortly thereafter, it's the scene of a, of a man dying in bed. He's the uncle, he's the old uncle, and his niece who has this you know, very deep relationship with him and is mourning his passing, you know, his imminent passing. But it's like, you just get dropped in without any, you know, uh, you know, preliminary introduction. Right? No preamble. Yeah. If he has access to it, we don't. Yeah. There's, there's absolutely But it no. works. Yeah. You just go deep into whatever the emotional, you know, focus of that story is. You get just dropped into it. And then it's over. And you move into the next thing. And yet, there's more to it than that. I mean, in that scene between... The, the man who's dying and the niece first of all, you know it's the same actor who's been playing it and putting on costume hmm. and then there's this there's the moment where he dies in the scene yeah. then he rises and then he starts to walk away and then he looks back to the niece who's crumpled like on the bed uh, crying but you can't see her face it's it's down in her in her arms and then he He's now no longer in character, but he turns to her and, and you know, she says, you great work. Yeah. Right along those lines. And asks her her name, and she says, you know, her name is Elise. And he says, you know, something along the lines of, I hope to work with you again. Yeah. And so you've experienced the scene, and it's been very intense, and felt very real. Uh, and then you're out of the scene, but you're still in the scene because it's a film. Yeah. And... It's just working on multiple levels all the time, and you can't really quite. There's there's just this evanescent quality to it. You
0: can't grasp it. You can only feel your way through it. Yeah, it's just remarkable. It is. It is a work of like it's it's an intuitive work. I think because I don't doubt that Kuron knows exactly what he's doing. Right. I just don't know what it is. I I mean I, I think I wrote at the time that I don't know that he does know what he's doing. That it, it felt because of the energy of it, because it feels like it is feeling its way through whatever's going on. Uh, someone else at the time referred to it as a Quantum Leap movie, where people are just, we are watching people assume other lives, but yeah, that's what happens. is. But that's, that's what that's, that's part of it, but its it
1: addresses that you know head-on in the film, because mm. he's an actor, and then there's that scene, or whatever it is that he is, but there is that scene where the man appears in the limousine, yeah. who talks to him about you know, we've been watching you, and you still believe in what you're doing? And, you know, they talk about, oh, the camera used to be larger than your head, and now yeah, the cameras yeah. are so small. And so there's a commentary on what's happening artistically in the world, what's happening to film. Um, so it's overt within the film, and yet it just gets subsumed inside the film, too. Yeah. Um, so there is commentary, but it's not this sort of explicit didactic commentary.
0: Yeah, oh, no, no, it's just, it's elusive and elusive. It, it, it It's constantly hinting at a larger world and larger structures that we simply aren't privy to, and to the point where we watch a movie with an audience and we are not part of that audience. We're still outside of that experience. Yeah,
1: and there's, you know, we're talking about it in, in sort of a, a like a macro sense about what yeah. the film is, but when you look at it scene to scene, like in every scene, there's not a wasted frame, and there's not a wasted moment. There's always something interesting populating the frame. You know, um, he'll always introduce something. So either something, either the camera will turn to something, either it's in the mise en scène where it's already been positioned there, or something enters frame. You know, there's early on in the beginning of the film, it's in that movie theater, in that darkened theater, and you know, Karis is actually there, like right, the director. Yeah. Is that the you know he's playing whatever he is that he's playing at the beginning of the film and he's looking down from behind um, the cinema where all the people are facing the screen and he's just looking at their heads and to the left there's the aisle and first oh, just all of a sudden there's a small child who walks down the aisle it just does yeah and then there's a, a large black dog who kind of lumbers down so there's always something there's always something animating each frame I mean it's the most you know, I think in any work of art, including you know, you know, I both write and direct films, but I'm very conscious of whether it's on the page or on the screen. It's like you don't want to waste space. You know, you you want to make sure that you're not just you know treading water. Right. That there's something going on. And in in this film, like in almost no film that I can think
0: of, he's constantly doing something. Yeah. Well, it's the it's the, the hallmark of short filmmakers, right? They they cannot... You, you have six minutes. You have to do everything. You have to tell a complete story. You can't waste a frame. And if this film is a series of shorts, then it it is like being hit with all this information and all this processing power that you have to devote to the film, which weirdly hypnotizes you because you're doing so much work to pay attention and follow along that you just end up... I, I felt like I was drafting on it like I was just in mm. right behind it being pulled along in its wake even though it took everything I could just to keep up with it and I, I was saying before we started rolling I saw it on an absolutely god-awful screen and yeah. it looked like someone had blown their nose on the image Yeah. so I've never seen it on a big screen uh, which I'd love to see it's a very very different experience I haven't seen the DVD master that um that Mongrel ended up releasing in, in Canada but I did buy the UK Blu-ray and it's gorgeous Right, and it looks a lot like the version that I saw I mean I saw a digital you saw in the theater and it was it's gorgeous the colors are so much brighter the reds are redder and all of that but, yeah. but it feels like life it feels alive in a way that the version I originally saw didn't it was just a bad master but you know it's one of those things that can c- completely destroy your experience of a film if you see a substandard presentation of it though I think this film because of like the sheer power of,
1: of imagination and feeling I don't know how you could not you know
0: oh it definitely worked yeah that's true it worked on me I just had to work harder to get to it yeah I,
1: think. I, I and just the different registers that it's working and there's a there's a tragic register and there's a, a comic register mm-hmm. and there's the absurd and somehow and all at once and all at once mm-hmm. and somehow well, not always all at once. Sometimes it's just one or the other. But you move from scene to scene. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the
0: I always fall back on the interlude on the on the accordion yeah. uh, number, which is just pure pleasure because it is it's structured though. I mean, it's it plays like a Looney Tunes cartoon, and just in its levels of complication that it just keeps adding, uh, and its strange, unexpected. I mean, it's a musical number with weird timing yeah. and and just that amazing. The count off one two shit i mean yeah 112 shit. 112, that's right it's even more complicated yeah. than that um the fact that at that point in the movie i was trusting it with anything yeah. but that was delirious yeah i think i actually I, I was watching it late at night and i may have woken up the entire house laughing yeah
1: and it also i mean it's a film about film it's a film about you know the the traditions of film, the history of film, in some ways. I can't, I won't pretend to say I understand all the references. <laughs> oh, but, I know. Yeah, there's stuff. But I that interlude is a real interlude, meaning that there used to be, you know, you, there would be an intermission. And so here's the intermission, and it's a musical, you know, uh, crafted number yeah. with the same actor who
0: I believe is actually playing that accordion. Oh, I'm sure he is. Del Ni Levant is terrifyingly talented. Yeah. I would expect that he hadn't been able to play the accordion until the day before the shoot and just figured it out. But no, I, I'm pretty sure that's him doing it because it Looks like why it. why wouldn't it be? And exactly. also the, what we've seen in the film, his virtuosity is established by that point. Of course he can do that. He can yeah. do whatever he wants. Yeah. I mean, it's, again, that's so, when you ask why I
1: chose the film, I just think, I don't, you know, sometimes you go to a film and you're like, okay, that's really good, but I could do that. <laughs> yeah. Right? No, and you're like, I understand how they made that. And I think if, if, you know, if somebody was to come to me and say, make me something like that, um, it's within my capability to do that. Sure. If somebody was to say to me, make this, I couldn't do it. Yeah, I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, there's... Well, you start, I mean, you start with your heart. I mean, you. Yeah. St- but it's it, it's an act of pure feeling and, and uh, imagination and creativity, but I couldn't do that. I mean he's He just has a talent that is you know in in literal terms unique you I just don't come across that are you were you familiar with his other films Have you see I wasn't and I went back and I saw uh Bad blood what they sang mm-hmm. and I didn't get through it. yeah, I gave up kind of midway through because it seemed more f- formalistic oh it is yeah. than this um you know he's he's remarkable with what he can do was on Stand, how he moves his camera I mean no question um, and he's and he's inventive and all of those things but it just didn't have the feeling and this really did
0: yeah. had you I would recommend and the one that jumps to mind for me is boy meets girl uh, because it has the, the first one the, the it's got everything yeah put everything into it it's yeah. that thing with the first film where you make you know full well you may never make another one yeah and he just went for them he shot uh, he shot the works uh, it's the film that famously has the Denis Van dancing to David Bowie's modern love scene that was lifted or, you know, tributed and commented upon and homaged in uh, Miss, uh, Francis Ha, in you know, the film. And it's the kind of movie that just refuses to wait for you to catch up as well. It's just this declaration. The filmmaker I keep comparing him to weirdly is Lars von Trier, who yeah. who established himself as this very serious formalist with a few movies that were self reflexive but still very much playing with structure in a way that made you realize how much respect he had for structure. Uh, element of Crime and Epidemic and, and Europa, which is weirdly insufferable in its depiction of, you know, post-World War II art house formalism. Uh, and now he's... and Well, now. And then he made Breaking the Waves and divested himself of all of it and just started this new chapter. And mm-hmm. now he's sort of this weird prankster... Mechanic. I don't know how to describe him anymore. Yeah. And Karras seems to have done the same thing, but with fewer films. He's just not waiting for us to... He's not giving us the time to figure out what he's doing. He's just doing things.
1: I'm not... I'm not an expert on Lars von Trier. I'm actually not... It never mm-hmm. took with me.
0: Breaking the Waves is really the essential one. That's the And one that's
1: that the one that assist. didn't take with me. Really? That's, yeah, that that's, just, that's part of it. Um, but this, I felt, was was genuinely deeply felt mm-hmm. um you know even though you can say well what how does it cohere and i think that's the important thing that it coheres through authenticity of feeling yeah um and that's what pulls it along from beginning to end really frame to frame yeah
0: um i honestly don't know i mean the one the thing is only a comparison i make because it's sort of the it helps me frame the evolution and and understand how you can get from there to there. Uh, but I I think you're right. I do think there's nothing else like this. I think it's a it's an unprecedented type of cinematic experience. So um, you saw it on disc. I saw I saw I, I read
1: a review in the New York Times. Okay. And it seemed intriguing. And then I got it. And uh, I was it was just like we we're talking about. Like nothing I'd seen before. made such a strong impression. And. That sense of something that really breaks all sorts of boundaries, um, and I think anybody who works in the arts, you're always kind of you feel the strictures, mm-hmm. um, you feel the conventions all the time, and you and, you know either you work within them or you you know struggle to somehow break through them. First of all, you have to have the talent to break through them. Yeah. But you actually, you can say, oh, I resent the strictures and I resent the conventions, but come up with an idea that's worthy of, of you know, exceeding them. Um,
0: sure, yeah. I mean, God knows a lot of people start by the start out by saying, I'm breaking rules, that very quickly we realize, oh, you don't actually understand the rules, you're just doing a thing you want to do. Right. It's not the same at all. And it also has to be guided by something, you know, that's, that's
1: genuine. That, that's why, I mean, this film... Thing, there's nothing that is gratuitous about what he's doing at any point. Um, I think he's very self-aware, at least um, technically what he's doing, but it's guided by this thing that's that's very hard to articulate. But you just know it when you feel it, right? In the way of any good piece of art, in the way of you know Rothko. Um, I can't say that I'm a tremendous fan of a lot of uh, you know. Um, abstract expressionist art. but every now and then I stand in front of a piece or I see something, and it just does it, because and the only way I can explain it is that I think that, that it's rooted in something you know authentic and real and human. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the case with Holy Motors. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe it's even more so because it you know treads into areas of the absurd. I mean, when he goes home at the end, home, yes. and you see him with his, with his uh, ape family carrying his you know holding on to his ape child I was like I think I had tears I think
0: I wept Yeah. I mean it was just it's so unexpected that's certainly true it, it felt to me like the beginning of 2001 somehow where you have been now uh, 2001 opens in an alien landscape that just yeah. happens to be earth Yeah. and this film ends in an alien landscape which we feel as real and, and it is alien but it's not I yeah. mean they're inside a you know a th- some kind of European suburb. Yeah, it's a recognizable reality. Yeah. It's just unreal because, of course, it's, yeah. not, it's literally not human. It's, but,
1: it, but it's uh, more human. But it's more, more human, human. Yeah. exactly. I think if he was holding a child, the impact wouldn't be the same. The fact that he's holding and he's part of this ape family, though he's not an ape, Yeah, it's impossible to explain, and I think it's impossible. I just keep putting myself, try to put myself in carries his shoes to say like on the day or before right. when he's talking to his you know um to his producer to his production designer to his props people to his I guess animal wrangler well you need one yeah right? sure i mean and you're like this is what we need on day you know 27 right this is where we're going to be yeah and everybody has to well, i keep going back to this idea too of of courage or bravery. Like, everybody involved, I think, was incredibly brave. Um,
0: I think. I mean, I, I don't know these people. Or just incredibly committed. I mean, it's... Trusting him is its own... Right. ...kind of bravery. I mean, it, I guess it would be... It would probably seem more daring if he didn't have a track record if he hadn't already well, made Well, it's, it's two things. things. It's two things. I think this idea of, of courage and
1: fear uh, is in the arts all the time. Mm-hmm. So, if you're a big enough name people will be afraid to say no. Okay, yeah. Okay? So then people will go along with any kind of nonsense. Sure. Right? Yeah. Because it takes an act of courage um, to say no to somebody who, you know, has
0: influence and power. Right. Okay? And once again, there are four Transformers movies in the world. And they weren't just made by one guy. Yeah, that's an right. excellent example. And the, the Transformers films are my whipping stick on this guy. Okay. I, just I, I haven't them. seen them, but Wait, I'll take your word for them. Thousands yeah. of people are employed on those yeah. things. And at no point does anyone ever say, you know, there's no story. We, we don't have anything. Right. I mean, I think of the, the CG sequence, um, the virtual reality or mm-hmm. motion capture scene, in the film where we see inexpressible things... To the point that I, on second and third viewing, I was just left wondering, how did you get here? I mean, do you sketch this? Do you draw this? Do you just say, do whatever you want to do? Exactly. How do you get to that realization of this is what I need? I I thought the same thing.
1: I wondered what was the conversation that he had with his, you know, CGI artists
0: and how to do it and his animators. Yeah. Or even to the actors, because they have to physically embody something that doesn't exist
1: well the actors yeah the and actors i w-
0: was easier to do i mean i mean it's not just interpretive dance though no. it has to mean something yeah yeah
1: for sure yeah.
0: Yeah. i mean I, I was thinking about other films that have done this sort of thing where they invent a cinematic language and and cronenberg's crash is one that comes up every now and then where dialogue is replaced by sex where the actual intercourse is telling the story and that's something that doesn't even happen in pornography it's simply a new language is being invented in front of you and you're learning how to watch it as the film goes on. There's only a handful of movies that have even dared something like that. Holy Motors doesn't even have that because so much of it is played without language and without context. Mm. It's stripped further down. And we are just trying to figure out... And that's what's so delirious about the experience of watching it for the first time. I felt like I was hanging on to it. Mm. And the next time through... It doesn't quite fit together the way I remembered it fitting together. And then the third time, I was sort of listening to it more than I was watching it, just trying to figure out if there were cues in the sound that I was missing. It's an incredible... Uh, document is the wrong word, but it's an object as a film that yeah. I don't think has precedent.
1: No. I mean, it's it's it exists within a class of art, um, you know, works of art that I think are at a certain level that you can revisit, um, you know... Infinitely, mm-hmm. because you you don't know what the code is, even though you've seen it, and you can you believe like you can decode it. Right. It's still somehow beyond you. Um, I feel that way. You know, Caravaggio is a is a painter I love, and I can stand in front of some of those canvases, and you can see what he's done. But it's still, you know, it's it's profound enough in in its way that it doesn't matter. You. you Every time you go, you feel like you learn something new. I mean there are, there are writers like that um, who you can revisit and read, or individual stories by writers and Of course, the code is exposed i mean it's right there it's on the page, yeah, and yet, how the writer achieved that, or even the fact that you know you can reread the sentence and particip- you just have the pleasure of something that is so true and pure
0: that it never gets old it doesn't yeah. Well, and you're a novelist as well as a filmmaker, yeah. so you are capable of working entirely on the page in the, in a the literary medium. So I would, I would, my my guess, my assumption is that a film like this is exhilarating because it is so completely freed from that stricture. This could not work as text. I mean, it, I guess it probably could, but the additional levels of of interaction are just so rewarding here. I mean, you need to see that it's the same person. Yeah, you need to. Hear his voice, you need to feel the rhythm of the edits in a way that the page doesn't allow. Absolutely. But again, as you said, it's miraculous that it exists at all because where do you even start? Yeah. I would, I mean, you know, whatever, I, I'll probably never
1: meet the man, but yeah, I'm, it's fascinating how a film like this comes to exist because of all the things you need to create a
0: film. Because mm-hmm. of, I don't know how much this film cost to make. Um, it couldn't. couldn't have been cheap. I mean, just. Just the complexity of the of the shoot and the CG and the makeup. I mean, there's stuff going on oh, all yeah. the time, and, it, yeah, and, and the locations too. The locations,
1: mm-hmm. and it looks yeah, and the extras. That's the thing that always. That's true. <laughs> if you've if you've made films, and especially if you've made films on a budget, extras. You know, when you
0: see the yeah. background,
1: right, you're like, oh,
0: that's there's real money in this. Sure, you have to feed them, you have to clothe them. God, for the musical number, you have to choreograph them. That's not digital. Those are all human beings dancing around. Yeah. Um, Yeah I have Again It's one of those things That it felt like It came out of nowhere The the revelation Even the revelation of, Of the sequence in Tokyo Was Oh We didn't know He was working on anything Here he is And it's fully formed And it's It's so completely distinctive that there, it couldn't possibly be from anyone else. And then to see it return in the same that that sort of antic spirit still infecting him in the, in his next feature, I I don't know where he goes from here. It's unlike anything else he's done except for moments in Boy Meets Girl, mm-hmm. little flashes here and there. But it's and you know he made a film about a, a an angry author, a poleaxe. So it, yeah, it's completely unrelated to this other work that he's doing, and he just. Went off and explored that for a couple of years and came back with a movie. And now there's this, and it's an it's a, it's an unknowable movie from an unknowable filmmaker, which is sort of wonderful. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think part of maybe part of why I was able to experience it the
1: way it is because I didn't have uh, any kind of precedent for him. Oh, I see. It was the sure. first film of his that I saw, so I came with no preconceptions about who he was. Nothing to compare it against. You know. With his other films, um, I think there there are artists um, who just do stuff like this. I think the you know the American um, writer, short story writer, novelist Dennis Johnson, um, just does stuff that I think is in this register. Yeah. It's dreamlike. You never know where it's going to go from scene to scene. Um, the collection. Jesus' son, which was turned into a film, and I uh, I think a disappointing one Un- unsuccessfully, yeah I would yeah. say um it didn't you know this is a filmmaker who could have done you know Jesus' son, yeah and sh- you know that's
0: the sort of thing to sort of find a way to knit together the disparate elements because the the film of Jesus' son was my first experience i didn't read I hadn't read the short stories at yeah. the time, and then when I went back, I thought, oh, I see, like you can't film that at least that film couldn't capture it was the wrong the
1: filmmaker. It was it was a filmmaker not equal to the task of of that of that story.
0: Yeah, it was just a matter of tone, I think. I mean, you could that those elements could still have worked. It just it felt like it went wide. It's a it's a poor. Phrase. It was Allison McLean's film, wasn't it? Yeah, I don't I don't know who the filmmaker
1: was. But in any event, it was it's this idea of having. You know, what was great about Dennis Johnson is again you you can't anticipate where he's going from from scene to scene there's something that is you know dreamlike and absurd but also always rooted deeply in feeling um and it's remarkable when you see it done you know louis ck is another example of somebody who's doing things to my mind kind of in that register you know what he's done with uh, television as a form um what he's done with the half hour you know um
0: yeah, you can't really call it a sitcom. That's it's not a sitcom. Not what he's doing
1: exactly, and he's you know he's taken it where his heart leads him, um, and that is the guiding principle. Again, you can't go and pitch that. You can't go and pitch it um, faithfully, because you know how you pitch that is. You know, I'm this comic, and it's you follow basically the Seinfeld example. There's a bit of stand up at the beginning, and then it's about you know the stand up, right. But ultimately, that
0: series goes completely elsewhere, and he he really becomes a filmmaker. Yeah, I mean, even his experiment—I mean, he recasts his kids. He has different characters played by the same actor, or different actors play the same character. And he's uh, watching, yeah, watching CK develop as a filmmaker has been fascinating because I mean, I saw Pootie Tang. I saw what happens when he delivers a studio product. Uh, I never saw that. It's it's weirdly beloved now in the way that people who grew up watching it on cable. Can weirdly beloved something, uh, as opposed to those of us who saw it in the theater as grown-ups and thought, no. Um, It has some really fascinating ideas, and now I think in the rearview mirror of what he is doing, uh, with, with with Louis, with Horace and Pete, with all of these weird little experiments in narrative that he's decided are not only possible but necessary, and he's absolutely right. But again, just the decision to take X amount of money from FX and come back with a television show when he's good and ready is... Incredible, and and it's in, and you can see it radiating outwards now. It's in it's in love, the Paul Rust and Gillian Jacobs series. It's in Master of None, uh, which clearly wouldn't have been possible. Um, Aziz Ansari wanders around New York commenting on the social world. Yeah, uh, clearly wouldn't have been possible without Louis doing it first as Louis. And then there's this whole other thing about. The single-camera sitcoms evolving into drama, and the means of production reaching a point now where it is possible to make a movie for nothing or make a television series for nothing. The way Broad City operates—it's well, not for nothing. I mean, that's you know, that's nothing true. is a relative term. Yes, um, yeah, but certainly less than the cost of an average episode of a multi-camera program. For sure. But the constrictions, the constraints that you apply to yourself, often end up being the most important ones, right? Because having very little money makes you utilize the resources that you have, and and having unlimited power inevitably leads to a lack of control, somehow. Um, You just, again,
1: enough people have to be brave. Not everybody has to be brave, but enough people have to be brave to bring something um, to realization. So, like Louis' series, or like this film... Um, so somebody who has access to money or a number of people who have access to money have to be brave or or cowardly either you have to find people who you can cow or you have to find people who are going to be brave Right. and it depends on your personality and who you are in the world uh, for me to make that happen yeah.
0: well for you as a filmmaker how where do you stand on that spectrum how do you see yourself are you a, a leader or are you an assembler are you a I think Collaborator. I think I'm think i a leader and an
1: assembler. I don't think I can cow anybody into doing anything. I think I'm constantly looking for people to be brave with me um, to the extent that the kind of work I do requires bravery. Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, I, as I say, I confess I don't know how to make that. Right. I would love to be able to do something like that. But I would love to also be in a position to back somebody to do something like that, even if it's not me. I'd love to exist in a world where there are enough people, you know, who want this sort of thing done and have the resources and the wherewithal to either make it themselves
0: or enable somebody else to do it. Yeah. I have always been heartbroken for over decades of of covering the industry and and of, of watching what I love and following the things that I love and watching the artists that I admire struggle to get stuff done. I'm always just stunned that well, it, this week, for example, we're recording this in the wake of the opening of Batman v. Superman, Death of Joy, and the, uh, the attendant destruction of the concept of the DC Universe and whatever else is happening, and Warner Brothers' reaction to this movie not making enough hundreds of millions of dollars, because it made hundreds of millions yeah. of dollars, but it re- re- represents an investment and a return that they're not necessarily getting, and they're afraid that it's the tone of the film. And they announced yesterday that the response is that they're going to make fewer non-franchise films... So movies like Jeff Nichols' Midnight Special, which opened a week later, and which is a transcendent um, paranormal experience. I don't know how to describe it without giving people the wrong expectations, but it is a better Superman movie for not having Superman in it than the movie that does have Superman in it this year. Uh, So movies like that, which don't cost as much, but are harder, presumably, to market than a film in which a recognizable actor plays a recognizable figure from a popular culture... Those movies are going to be the things that they stop, rather than paring down this gargantuan machine. Because, as I think somebody, I think it might have been Louis Leterrier, told me once, without any apparent irony, you can spend 100 million and get 300 million. You're going to do that, as opposed to spending 20 and maybe get 60. And the idea that the middle middle range movie has disappeared because of this, because everyone is chasing the next well universal franchise thing. It's not everyone. So first of all, there's some people who will never have a hundred million
1: dollars. Sure. So where are all the people who have access to twenty million dollars, for whom twenty to sixty sounds like a good deal?
0: Yeah. There's right? Annapurna Pictures. I think that's it, right?
1: They're the only people making these films. I think that's you know, in my experience of, of working um, in film, I mean, both in film and and literature, um, it's been over the past you know more than a little more than a decade. Mm-hmm everything is a lot I don't want to say everything has changed but a lot has changed just over that time sure from the time that I started working um which was let's say early 2000s it was more like 1989 right it was more like 1990 right in the early 2000s than it is anything like 2016 so over that period you know it was sort of the tail end of independent films you still had enough
0: theaters or you know, streaming hadn't come on. Sure. Miramax was had was still chasing Oscar projects, but they were also still buying mm-hmm. and distributing. That sort of slowed down. Yeah. Um, so you see the difference. I mean, you, you feel that, you know,
1: that's changed, the playing field. Um, I don't know where it's going to go. I will say, back to the idea of, you know, having some courage, um, you know, a film like the one that I just made. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's a film that was made in Toronto. Um... It's made with Russian-speaking actors who are authentically Russian-speaking actors, so it's nobody pretending to be Russian. There are right. no movie stars in this thing, um, and Telefilm, uh, to whom I give a tremendous amount of credit in this instance, you know, had the courage, and uh, Dan Lyon, who you know is the regional guy here, had the courage to say, "Yes, this is something we consider as worthwhile," and. We're going to let you do this. We we feel that it's you know valid that you're going to make a film in a foreign language that is neither English nor French right. um, in Canada, um, and that in a way breaks the mold for telefilm.
0: Certainly, I can I can't think of a film which is entirely or or predominantly in a non-Canadian language. Uh, And that includes stuff like Gadanarjoa, which is a Canadian language. That's right. But as far as, I mean, even films like Saba are mostly performed in English with characters who occasionally lapse into their native tongue. Um, It's, I mean, it's risky on one side for them, but on the other side, is it any riskier than a film that is, I mean, you are sort of a known property within this, within the audience they're targeting, right? The book exists and you're a name. Yeah. So that gives them the advantage. And I think it's risky just because
1: it's the first time. Anytime mm-hmm. you say yes to something and you set a precedent, sure. your ass is on the line a little bit. Yeah. Right? So somebody has to be the one who has the you know the courage to say yes to something that nobody said yes to before. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a reason why you can make a case to have somebody say yes to it, and that is Canada's changing. Yeah. Right. You know the idea that you know we should only make films in English or French or finance them or one of the indigenous languages well look at the country now yeah. I mean we can argue you know the film is set entirely in Toronto but if you were to take this film that's set entirely in Toronto about this community and force these people to speak, to speak English right.
0: it's a species of fraudulence that everybody would recognize and I have seen a couple of films like that and they do feel fake well it's just it's that weird sense that from the very beginning of the film the movie doesn't trust you People are supposed to be speaking a foreign language, but they're not. I mean, yeah, something like Dr. Zhivago, it was a different time. You could sort of get away with it. Well, listen, you can
1: make a film that's entirely in English, um, and you understand that in in the world that they exist in, like, it's it's Russia, right? but everybody's speaking English for Russian. That's right. fine. Yeah,
0: as long as the signs remain Cyrillic so we know what the reality is. Exactly. That's, fine, that's yeah. fine, because everybody's
1: speaking that same language. But if you're in a place where... Um, Everybody has to speak with an accent when they're speaking a foreign language and then clear, you know, English when they're not. Right.
0: Unless you're finding a way to do that creatively. Okay. And there really isn't one. I mean, and there is, <laughs> The and only it's, one that worked was The Hunt for Red October where the English became broken when characters were speaking. Right. Russian characters were suddenly forced to actually speak English rather than the Judgment at Nuremberg trick where you pan, you track in and you track out. But yeah, trap me with people who aren't speaking my language. As long as there are subtitles, I'm fine with that. I, I trust the movie knows what we it's doing. We see it all the time. I mean, we see films from other countries that come into our country. Sure. And they're
1: subtitled in our language. And we watch them. Yeah. Um, and they feel real because in where they shot them, they have no reason to shoot them in a different language. Yeah. And no fear that if they get sent to some foreign country that they can't be subtitled. I mean, and the same thing... The same thing applies here.
0: Um, yeah, it's it's jarring. I mean, I know that there was a hist- there was a much there's a history of dubbing in Europe yeah. and I mean even in Quebec, there are English films are dubbed into French on a regular basis. Yeah. And that's again, that's an expectation that that's what the market wants. But eh, it's not anymore. Well, but I, it's, it's but there's a difference between dubbing a film and making it right. So, right. yeah, the the idea of That it would seem daring to make a film in another language in a country like Canada. I mean, how many Spanish films are made in the U.S. these days? How many? Well, it's not daring to make it; it's daring to put public money up against it. I suppose, right? Public money goes to some
1: (laughs) really—it's. Want to open that can more? It's just well, I just mean that there's a moment where. You know, things have been done in a particular way, and then you diverge from it. So it's that moment where you diverge. Right. It could be diverging for very good reasons, and you you could even argue that you should have diverged a long time ago. Yeah. But until
0: you've done it, you know, it's a leap. Yeah. And it's that same sense of possibility, I suppose, that the, the idea that this can happen, the idea that you can do this, that comes back to Holy Motors, where... While I, I'm often surprised by the choices that the guests make on the podcast, this was one that based on the film I've seen of yours and, and the, the work of yours that I know, I'm really quite surprised. So uh that leads us to the final question, is that it's it was it felt like a left field a decision that kind of makes and it makes much more sense now that we've spoken, of course, but uh the the final question of the podcast is always the same, which is what of the film have you borrowed or absorbed or stolen, is what's made it into your DNA from Holy Motors? Um,
1: I think that idea, and it's not just Holy Motors, but Holy Motors, you know, as we've been talking, is an example from yeah. different works of art where you try to do something where you're guided um, in this non-linear associative way by your heart. Yeah. Um, and that's and I, and I won't say that it's anything but Caris's uh, heart that guides this film I don't think it's intellectual at all I think it's purely emotional but you find some framework to channel emotion to make something that is coherent even if it's not um, you know it coheres without being um, what's the word I want to use I want to
0: say coherent I think coheres without being coherent is actually. A- I guess, but it's. I mean, there's there's no obvious structure to it. Right. Um,
1: you just get it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and so that that's remarkable when you see that there's no precedent for it, um, that it creates its own code, that there's no convention that it's following, um, that it's you know it's it's you know sui generis, mm. um, and it's so rare to come up against and to find works of art like that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what I aspire to do um, insofar as, as I'm capable of it. But again, I think you you also have some sense of your own limitations um, and you hope that you can find a framework in which you can surpass your limitations. I right. think there's there, there structural, you know, Practical reasons why it's harder in film than it is in 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 writing um, Because there's so many more elements you have to bring together But then maybe if you you know, if you come up with an idea That's as remarkable and revolutionary as as what he's done and find some way first to articulate it to other people to get it made Maybe that's maybe that's my failing that you know, even when I have an idea I'm not as good as he is just at the first stage of finding a way to express it
0: to get people behind you yeah. um all that to me is you know it's a great mystery i wonder if it's simply that he has never experienced self-doubt in his life i mean this feels like the work of someone who's never thought twice about what it is he wanted to do and a couple of his other films have that same vibration to them the confidence is just off the charts yeah and yeah i hope on my best days i i'm capable of producing one of the pieces of holy motors certainly i don't think i could get to two yeah but it's something to shoot for yeah and it's great that it's out there and it's great that you know you can watch it
1: yourself and refer other people to it and and say that this is the sort of thing that's possible yeah um and if this is the sort of thing that's possible then then perhaps it could be done again
0: my thanks to david Bezmosgus whose new movie, Natasha, opens the Toronto Jewish Film Festival this Thursday, May 5th, and then opens commercially in Toronto and Vancouver on Friday, May 6th. You can also find his first feature, Victoria Day, in Canada on DVD and for sale or rental on iTunes. You can find David on Twitter at Besmozgis, B-E-Z-M-O-Z-G-I-S, all one word. And you can find Holy Motors on DVD in Canada from Mongrel Media and in the U.S. on Blu-ray and DVD from Vivendi Entertainment. It's also available for rental and purchase on iTunes, and if you're in Canada, you can find it on Netflix. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. And if you want to leave a review on iTunes, this week's call sign is Kylie Minogue. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
1: I'm afraid you just chewed on me.